Once upon a time, in a faraway land. What are fairy stories? The strange and wondrous place where nothing is as it seems. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest? Fairy is a perilous land. Before she found herself falling down what seemed to be a very deep well. It is the place you visit in your dreams. A world of myth and magic. When the clock began to chime the a mysterious voice began calling to the sad princess. She flicked her finger with her needle. Three drops of blood fell on In a trance, she followed the haunting sound the of a winding tree. stairway to the top of the you tower. You can read along with me in your book. She waved her wand and said the magic words. Let's begin now. Well met, witches. Welcome to Storybook, Sacred Lore of Witchcraft. Today we have a special guest in the circle, Keldon Mercury. Keldon's been a practicing traditional witch for more than a decade and is the author of a few of my favorite books, The Crooked Path, An Introduction to Traditional Witchcraft, The Witch's Sabbath, An Exploration of History, Folklore, and Modern Practice, and All These Witches, a collection of folklore and rhymes. Kelton, thank you for being here. We, uh, we asked you to come in to talk a little bit more about this ongoing discussion that we have on the tale of Cinderella and specifically how it relates or how we could use it to inspire some talk about the topics that you write about. Um, do you have a particularly favorite version of the tale? Um, I have sort of like two, um, well, technically three. I really like um, kind of going out um, the Chinese version. So earlier on, like 860, um, Ye um, And I apologize for horrible pronunciations. Um, and there's a Vietnamese version, um, Tam and Cam. And I really enjoyed those versions. I think that they have very unique cultural elements in them. Um, and then I really like um, uh, Finette Syndrome by uh, Madame Duvalnay, um, who I think, you know, one thing that I thought of when we were kind of gearing up to talk about Cinderella is, um, you know, when we think about fairy tales, we often think about sort of the like triad Right, which is, I guess, more of like a quad if you consider like the Grimm brothers, two separate people, which of course they are. Um, but you know, we think of the Grimm brothers, we think of Charles Perrault, we think of Hans Christian Andersen. Um, but there's this whole group of French women who are really sort of responsible for kind of the formation of fairy tales as a literary genre, and they get so forgotten about. And what I love about um, Finette Syndrome is that it's actually like multiple fairy tale stories smashed into one because there's a Hansel and Gretel sort of opening, which then leads into kind of a Cinderella tale. And it's, it's really quite dynamic. And um, what's interesting too, while I'm on my soapbox about, about um, these particular stories, like the ones um, penned by Madame Dionnet, is that they're very feminist in that women have a lot more power than they do in sort of later iterations of fairy tales, um, the way that they, you know, wield more power um, is really quite interesting. So those are, those are really my, my um, favorite versions. That's that's so fun. I'm glad you brought up the women and like the salon tradition of fairy tales. We we uh, are still in our nearing the end of our first year of talking about stories, but we began with focusing on Brothers Grimm and with the idea of branching out from there. So we haven't yeah. really got this is the first time we're getting into the French fairy tales with Cinderella. So we haven't really gotten into the history there. And I think we I think we need to have a discussion at some point specifically about the literary fairy tale and and how um, how subversive it actually was. Um, this is a bit of a retread for for my other two panelists here, but A.B. Rodriguez is also here today from A.B.'s Witches Journal. And 
do you have any opening thoughts about the tale that we're we'll be discussing today? Um, I mean, honestly, one one of the things that I enjoy the most when it comes to talk about Cinderella, and and as a person that is from South America, and ironically, when it comes to talk about stories, the most famous version is Disney's version, which is very sugar coated, uh, bubblegum princess, um, and then you catch yourself reading um, some prior versions where a sister cut her toe and the other one cut um like the back of her feet and then the birds uh <laughs> plugged their eyes out um for me it was very interesting to get to read the stories when i began reading them and see all these not necessarily gore but these violent aspects of it and i think that i already shared these um in the prior uh, in the prior episode but it, it was very interesting for me to notice that Cinderella was this martyr, you know, this person that was the epitome of maybe purity, uh, saint-like, uh, holiness, almost virginal-like, an image of a Virgin Mary and being facing all these difficulties and trials without having to. And then at the end, thanks of her mother uh, her fairy god, uh, godmother or the little spirits the, the little birds around her uh she achieves more than what she wanted she just wanted to go out and have fun and at the end of the day uh, she ended up with the man <laughs> so yeah i i am i think that the most impactful thing for me just to begin with is um how this character kept pure to herself and at the end of the day she won all the things that she wanted and maybe a little bit more than that uh, so yeah, it, it's a very unique story. Um, I do admit though, that when it comes to talk about the history of it, I'm not as familiar as you both, but I am familiar with the Chinese version where, um, we see the fish and all of that, but I guess that we are going to talk more about it later on. So all good. <laughs> and finally, my returning panelist, Dave Gaddy, the weathered wise man. Hi, Dave. Have you had any new thoughts about Cinderella since we last talked? Let's put it this way. I'm dreaming about Cinderella. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I like about the older versions versus the Disney, I like the fact that they have a little tooth and claw to them. Um, they're not so whitewashed. They're not so pretty. Um, and I like the, the origins of the story and the differences between the versions, between the French, between the, the Brothers Grimm and the Chinese versions. And it's like you were saying, Keldon, you have those cultural cultural pieces that are added into the story um, based on their origin. Um, so that's a part of what I enjoy. So um, it's one of my favorites, along with Snow White. You know that, Aaron. So it's it's a pleasure to get so many different thoughts on the story. So the notes that I took are based mo mostly between Charles Perrault's Cendrillon and, and the Brothers Grimm uh, version. I'm excited to hear more about, especially the Vietnamese version of the tale that, that you'd like to address. Uh, some quick background information that, that I've shared before. These tales are not explicable usually by a simple allegory, which is one of the reasons likely why they've remained so popular throughout the ages, because they can be applied to so many different situations, yet none of them completely grasp all the mystique. So I, I realize that none of what we be, will be discussing today is the key to completely unlocking the tale, but new ways of looking at them. I think this goes back through the tree of the tale, through the background of the tale. In the beginning of the story, we have a distinction of two different family lines. We have Cinderella's mother. Uh, sometimes it may be another, another beloved relative. And then we have the stepmother and her sisters. So already something I've been thinking about is we have this distinction of the two different heritages that the people in the story are carrying. In Charles Perrault's French, we'll say, it says, the mother is the most beautiful creature in the world. And Cinderella is wonderful because she takes completely after her mother. 
the stepmother, however, is uh, proud and haughty, and her her daughters are like her in every way. And we've had discussions about tales where we have the three brothers. And in some of those, I've talked about how I could almost see them as like the the Hylix, the pneumatics, and and like the three races of man. And I'm wondering if there's a if there is a symbolism here of that where not only is Cinderella good because she's good, but also because she's coming from a different line than the rest of uh, the rest of the women in the story. The thing is that on on my end, of course, as uh, as a person, I guess that as a person that is just starting, you know, in this path, I do feel that that interpretation can be a little bit. Um, it can get you somewhere. I was actually, I I was actually because I'm more familiar with the Grimm's version. I was actually more focused on the financial, social, economical interpretation of the story if that makes sense but are you implying that maybe based on that um version of the story may cinderella be like the descendant of a witch or maybe of a fairy or something along those lines i'm going to say are we getting into the most literal reading of people claiming witch blood sure well and and now that he mentions that okay makes sense because in especially in europe right like there are traditions that imply that in order for you to be a witch you have to be born in a witch family right is that correct i think there's a lot of variations like what people mean talk about this term witch blood and it's one that like, quite frankly, I bristle at really um, hardcore because I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very quickly, it very quickly becomes problematic in how it's talked about. Yes. Um, you know, like, are we talking about something where it's like, we all sort of possess this maybe like divine, you know, sorceress spark within us where, you know, and then... Some of us are sort of called in that direction. But I think it's also sort of sometimes in this way of like, well, you know, only certain people have this special blood. Like it's almost taken so literally. And that's, you know, that's, that's never a good place to be. It kind of reminds me of that, that whole train of thought. Um, I'm descended of royalty. So therefore I have this. I'm sorry. I've seen some blood witches who have no pizzazz at all. It just kind of happened. Yeah. They cannot manifest $10 even yeah. if they want So, <laughs> I mean, neither here nor there. But, I mean, I feel like that could be one way to interpret the story. Yeah. Um, but then again, we've also touched on the ancestor magic part of it. That ancestry of Cinderella's mother and the tree and all of that yes. is a part of what's passed down to her well for example on my end culturally speaking um there is a phrase uh not a phrase um anyone can practice anyone can become a brujo or bruja but you certainly you need to be trained and you go you need to go through a process of um transformation let's call it like that however culturally speaking um it was said that when a kid was born with uh, um you know that film uh that you uh the babies a call. The, the the sorry a call. exactly that one in spanish is called mantilla and if the baby is born with that in their head it was said that they had maybe an extra kick in their spiritual uh, gifts, but that does not mean that anyone else can practice. So uh, the witch blood is not something that is too common down there in South America. So it's very interesting to get to hear more about that in here, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, right away, like like we've kind of hinted at, like there's this connection with death, um, and this is really, I mean, this is pretty common across fairy tales. I mean, like when we look at like. Valmir props um, functions, um, right? Like one of the first ones is this this sort of piece about the the family unit um, being destabilized, and usually that's through the death of a parent. Um, and so across Cinderella tales, right, it's usually a mother 
Um, sometimes it's the mother and the father, um, but again, there's there's so much variation. Um, but the mother dies, um, and this allows then some sort of um, disruption, which is usually through the introduction of a stepmother. Um, although we love Basile's version where there's, you know, the dead mother and then there's the stepmother and then there's the governess who helps, um, the girl, you know, kill the stepmother and then she, the governess becomes the, the wicked stepmother characters. There's a lot of drama there. Um, but she has this connection with, with death and it's through sort of engaging, with the spirit of, the, of her mother, right? There's often this sort of stand-in, you know, whether it's the bird in the Grimm's version or the fish in the Chinese version. Um, and it becomes this, this spirit helper who then helps her on her journey. Um, and I think that's something that I really appreciate about the story is this connection with ancestors um, as well as just with helper spirits in general. Um, I mean, we see this too um, in, in different iterations where sometimes it's not a stand-in um, for her mother. So like, for example, in Basile's version, right, it's the, the father goes and when, he, you know, he goes on his journey and he asks the, you know, the, all the daughters, you know, what do you want to bring back? Um, and Zola says, I want you to go and and speak on my behalf to the fairies. And so when he does, they give her, they give him, you know, a golden spade, a golden bucket, um, a napkin or like a silk cloth, and then a, a seed for a date tree. And it's the date tree that grows that then helps provide her you know, with this piece. And I think if we're, if we're sort of looking to at like, what is the meaning we make of the tale as like modern practitioners and kind of looking at different things, you know, I think about this tree also as a representation of the world tree, right? Of her connection to, to something beyond herself, which is often rooted in the natural landscape. I think if I remember correctly, when I was hearing about the, um, the studies tracing back the tale, that the tree was a more common motif, which is interesting because it's missing from the most, I think, well-known version of the tale because of modern adaption being being the French version of the tale. But mm -hmm. the tree is one of the things that stuck out to me with Grimm's version, as well as some other symbols of, I'd say, ascension um, or, or ecstatic practices. There's... Um, a ladder that she ascends to go to the pigeon coop. There's a, another tree she hides in, and mm -hmm. then an abundance of imagery of wings and birds and mm -hmm. things like that. I I, um, I heard you mention that you 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 seen some writings about a shamanistic tradition with the tale, which which I was actually not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then in, in Grimm's later uh, published version, the father becomes an antagonist mm -hmm. and he carries an ax and he chops down the pigeon coop and he chops down the tree. And I began thinking uh, almost like in Hocus Pocus. Witch hunters, observe, they wear black robes and carry axes to chop the wood to burn us. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was one of, the, one of the things that made me start looking at this tale. Um, in a bit more ecstatic and witchy ways. I think there's also too, I mean, like with that, there's this sort of like reversal imagery where like, you know, when she's, when she's going back from the Grimm's version, like when she's going back from the ball, right? Like she goes through, you know, the coop. And if we think about that, she's sort of going through this threshold back, you know, sort of through the dirt, through the muck, um, or she's going, you know, up the tree. Um, and it's sort of this process of undoing. And of course, she goes, you know, to the tree and, and the dress goes away and all that. And same in, you know, in Basile's version, um, you know, when she's when she approaches the tree, you know, she has sort of her saying, and it, you know, part of it at the end is, you know, strip, strip thyself and, and robe me. She says that to the tree. And then when she comes back, she says, strip me and dress yourself 
And so there's this sort of kind of piece too when I think about journeys and otherworldly journeys where you kind of, you go and then you sort of work your way back in a reversal of, of sort of methodology. That's, that's beautiful. And there's also something about the procession that she makes in order to achieve the end of the tale. So like the first night, she can only see the ball from the pigeon coop. She has to be able to see what it is. And the second night she goes and she comes back, but she redirties herself. The third night I thought was interesting. She's, she's dressed more glorious than the sun. She, go, she goes to the ball, she leaves. And the sister tells her that when, when she left, it was as if all the lights in the ball had gone out. So the light has left the ball. And then when she gets home, they add a detail that she lights, instead of getting herself all dirty and hiding by the hearth, she lights the light to guide her sisters back home. So now she's taken that light from the ball back home and now she's a guide to others. So like there is this progression in her development by how many times she's able to go to the other world and back, which I found really interesting. Well, right. I mean, I think that night flight, otherworldly travel, attending the witch's Sabbath. I mean, I think it's all about transformation, you know, and what that transformation looks like is, of course, going to be different. But I think anytime you go into the other world, you come back changed, big or small. Um, and so by her making these these journeys, right, so if we're looking at at the ball as, you know, as the other world, um, right, then she's, she is changed each time she comes back. And if, you know, ultimately, this is a story about rising, you know, above, right, there's going to be that ascendance that happens where each time the change is more significant, ultimately culminating in something pretty seismic in terms of the trajectory of her life and even so uh touching on that same subject the fact that she never lost who she was in the midst of it right i mean if you look at it she even even in the midst of their cruel behavior she treated the stepsisters with kindness right Right. And obviously, you know, that, that changes here and there. I mean, in the 18 mm -hmm. version, there's the piece added at the end about the birds pecking their eyes out, but she is not ultimately the one, you know, unless maybe it is right. like, but it doesn't read that way that, you know, she is, she's causing that to happen. Um, and in Madame Dione's version, Finette Cedron, um, What's interesting is that at the end of the story, she not only, um, you know, the the sisters come. I mean, in this case, I believe that they're actually just her sisters. It's not, I don't think it's stepsisters, um, but it could be wrong. Um, they, they come to the wedding and they're sort of expecting her to, you know, yell at them. And she welcomes them and she says, these are my sisters. And they're so surprised by this. And she ultimately, um, you know, she writes to their parents who, you know, at the beginning were like, hey, we're, we're in this time of poverty. Let's get rid of our, let's get rid of our children, right? Because there's that Hansel and Gretel element. She writes them and she has their fortunes restored. And um, she helps the sisters kind of go and have their own kingdoms, Um Right. So there's this piece where she's still, she's still, you know, good and just um, throughout, even though she's, she's risen through the ranks. I think that's um, one of the misinterpretations of most adaptions too, is that we're not necessarily seeing a love story. We're seeing the story about self-restoration and individuation. As opposed to the stepsisters who are literally severing pieces of themselves. Right. It's about her reaching her rightful place as herself. And I think that's important, too, because in the written versions, she does work mm -hmm. for what she does, for what she has. 
Um, in the Disney version, it's just kind of poof, you've got it. But she has to do certain things within the written versions in order to affect this particular piece of it, this change. We all mentioned the importance of the world tree in most versions of Cinderella, especially um, the Brothers Rim. And I wanted to take a weird detour and talk about an element that is in that tale, but I think shows up even more in the French version and, and m like the animated tale, most, most visual adaptions of the story, which is the coach and how it reminds me of Plato's allegory of the chariot. And like a, a brief synopsis of that is that Zeus leads the gods, heroes, and other worthy spirits in a nightly procession to a divine festival at the pinnacle of heaven or Mount Olympus. And he then goes on to talk about the souls of mortals, which is feminine and tripartite. It's a charioteer and a uh, light horse or a white horse and a dark horse. And the goal of the mortal soul is to balance both horses. And if they can, they can reach this heavenly festival and bathe in the light of the gods and dine on ambrosia and nectar. But if they lose control, they fall back to earth and they actually lose the ability to see the divine procession happening in the, in the heavens unless they are reminded through the sight of a beloved, like the, the, the face of the beloved might remind them of that heavenly light. And it reminds me of a few things. It reminds me of the chariot card with the light and the dark horse and the charioteer. But it does remind me of imagery in the tale, um, such as in the Grimm versions, the first night she gets a, a chariot pulled by white horses and the second night a chariot pulled by dark horses um, with, with uh, plumes like wings. And in uh, Perot's version, she, of course, has the pumpkin chariot. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about this idea of a night procession and how that overlaps with, with witchcraft ideas of the night raid. So there's sort of two broad streams of how kind of night processions pop up um, in folklore and then kind of get pulled into witchcraft. Um, you know, the first which I think we often think of would be concepts of the wild hunt, um, which has a long sort of um, kind of convoluted developmental history. Um, we can we can thank um, Jacob Grimm for um, for really codifying a sort of image of the wild hunt because you know it's in his book witch mythology that um, he really sort of draws on these different threads um, of literature and lore and, and creates this sort of image that he says, you know, this is what the wild hunt is. Um, and that, you know, a lot of that comes from um, lore about these sort of nocturnal bands of penitent dead, um, you know, these, these souls of the dead who basically have to wander in these bands through the night um, until, you know, they've been, you know, people have, have prayed for them essentially to the point that, okay, now they can sort of progress in their, in their afterlife. Um, but they're sort of wandering about at night in these sort of parades. And a lot of times there's sort of spooky figures intermixed who um, are kind of whipping things up and in charge. Um, and, um, you know, that gets, that gets kind of brought into the mix. Um, but there's also this other stream um, of what kind of broadly is referred to as the night wandering women. Um, and these, you know, this, this pops up in different sources across Europe. Um, but really this idea that there's a band of women, um, a lot of times sort of human women who maybe are going out in spirit. Um, it's always sort of debated. Um, and there's some sort of leader. Um, there's some sort of female leader, um, and they go from, you know, house to house and you're supposed to leave offerings out for them to appease them. And if you do so, they'll kind of come into your house and they'll feast and dance and then they'll bless your house. But of course, if you fail 
or, you know, if things like your spinning isn't done, you know, they might then um, essentially vandalize your house, um, things like that. Um, and a lot of times, too, there's lore in there about um, women, uh, these women sort of being taught magic practices, right? Locating stolen treasure, healing, things like that. Um, what's interesting about that, just to pull in um, one of the stories, is um, in Tam and Cam, um, there's, again, that sort of fish element, right? The donor spirit, um, the helper spirit is a fish. Um, in this case, it's not really necessarily related to the mother, um, but the the stepmother and the sisters they kill the fish after they find out that the fish is helping and um and of course tam is is horribly sad um and there is a fairy spirit in the story which is actually male um which is an interesting variant um and he tells her well take the bones and put the bones in four jars and bury the jars at the four corners of your bed um and uh when you you know, eventually she digs them up and each one then contains, right? One contains the dress, one contains a horse. Um, and I think, you know, in, in, um, in sort of these stories of the night raids, um, in particular in, in Italy, right? There's this notion of, of Madame Orient. And one of the things that she does is she works with bones. Um, you know, so they would, it was said that they would, you know, kill an ox and they would eat it. And when they were done, she would arrange the bones under the hide and she'd tap it with her wand and the ox would become resurrected. You know, again, there's, you know, not saying that these things are necessarily connected, but we see these sort of these elements of death, right? So she's able to, you know, use these fish bones to create, you know, more sort of magic enchanted objects. Um, she actually later, it's a two-part story, and in the second part, she's actually killed by the stepmom and the stepsisters, and then she is reincarnated through these different versions before finally being restored. Wow. Um, when I heard about Madame Moriani tapping with the with the bone wand, I, I, I'm thinking of the fairy godmother, too, tapping the mice as they come out of the cage. I mentioned how there's a lot of bird imagery in the story. And uh, one thing we've talked about before is how, you know, I almost imagine her as it's almost as if Cinderella is even like part bird, like the prince lays a bird trap for her by put by pacing pitch on the stairs to catch her. And you've written about uh, flying women who are part bird. Is, is that right? Yeah, there's um, so kind of going back into kind of Greek and, and Roman lore, we get concepts of the Strix and these terrifying bird-like creatures that fly through the night and devour babies and all that stuff. Um, but over time, they kind of have this transformation where it kind of goes from just being these bird-like monsters to women who can turn into birds. Um, and this motif of the, you know, the the flying cannibalistic bird woman, um, you know, it, it stretches and it expands. It goes all the way into Germany. Um, you know, there's mentions of, of the Strix in some of the earliest bodies of Germanic law um, and kind of how to deal with people being accused of being cannibalistic bird women um, and what to do if someone falsely accuses someone of being a cannibalistic bird woman. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, um, pieces of that then getting to get pulled into narratives about the witch figure. A.B., are there tales of like owl women or, or anything like that in Venezuela that you're familiar with? Yes. Um, these type of histories, I feel that it, they goes across, um, across the world and, and it's not, uh, Okay, uh, recapitulating a little bit, obviously, uh, the si not, not only the streaks, also the sirens, which pretty much were the prefigure um, in the Greek mythology, and they wrongly were me uh, translated onto mermaids, and um, like culturally, uh, culturally not, more like mythologically speaking, there were two different uh, creatures, let's say it like that. Um, in South America, Mexico, Venezuela, um, we can see a lot of connotation between birds, 
witches and also women. Um, understanding, of course, that this mentality of women that are monsters that feed from blood and kids uh, is it's pretty much associating that anything that is godlike is from the devil and that because the devil is not from god it's like a very misogynistic and religious view set but culturally speaking does exist um in venezuela it was attributed that some witches had the opportunity or the ability to transform into birds and land onto roofs and pretty much not feed from babies but feed from the blood of people that live in that in that house, and there were different charms and ways to defend um, defend yourself from being targeted by a witch, whether as throwing salt salt at them or putting protections and holy water. Um, we can also see them in Mexico, and I recently had the opportunity to talk with Laura Davila, which is a writer um, of uh, Mexican sorcery, and she was also telling me stories related to that aspect. But the funny thing is that um, culturally, they, we do see those negative elements of them, but they seem to be more exploited by these Catholic uh, men in power, not only accusing women that do not submit to them as being from the devil, but it's simply anything that do not belong to God is like monster-like. So yeah, for sure. Ironically, though, we do see that the power and abilities of a witch seems to be more um, connected with um, femininity or womanhood than with masculinity or men in South America, at least. Not saying that it does not exist, but it's more associated with it. Uh, so it's something that definitely did latch on me because um, many of the stories from Grimm's and um, the Grimm's brother and, and fairy tales do have a feminine as you Keldon mentioned do have like a feminine protagonist or a, a lady um, as a main character so it's very powerful to notice how Cinderella had these bird-like features but again this very pure like or sainthood or very Mary Virgin Mary um, imagery on her without all the negative associations of what um being a witch was like uh practically we see the um, at least on the grim story the end of the sisters not necessarily the the um stepmother but at least the sisters the um and even though they do not rely on witchcraft nor spirits of the forest uh they are the ones that end up <laughs> bad whether as uh cinderella uh protected by spirits or by her own powers or her ancestors, she do, does not receive negative connotations or any negative association. Even though I think that there is a version of um, Cinderella that seems to have like a more darker imagery, and instead of receiving help from a fairy godmother, is actually the devil, or where in this case, um, Satan. But I do, haven't had the opportunity to read that one, so I don't want to dive into that yet, at least. <laughs> So if you ask me, I do think that Cinderella is an allegory to witchcraft, uh, even though it's not specifically focused on that. <laughs> I, that was pretty much what I wanted to bring in. <laughs> well, I agree. <laughs> I think the fate of the sisters is one of the reasons I even wanted to mention uh, Plato's version of the chariot, because the sisters in, in this tale don't die, but they are blinded. And... And I thought of how the souls lose their ability to see the festival if they are unable to achieve the realization like Cinderella is. There's a number of, uh, of ways, I guess, of getting to the festival or getting to the Sabbath. Are there, are there, any, are there any other specific forms of, of transportation that you think are worthy to bring up, Keldon? I mean, I think that, like, across the Sabbath lore, you see a lot of different variations of, of locomotion. And, and there are, I mean, there are accounts where witches would go in carriages to the Sabbath. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's always fun. I mean, there's, um, 
you know, a lot of common household objects are going to be used. There's a folk tale from Norway where um, she actually flies in a dresser drawer. Um, and so, so things like that, I think, are always, are always interesting. I mean, the cultural pieces, you know, the variations are always fascinating. And then uh, the the broom, of course, is iconic. And do I remember was the chimney one one of the escape methods? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, sometimes specific pieces are brought in about like witches going up the chimney or going through keyholes, um, you know, or through windows. Um, I believe there's. Um, in you know, in, in one of the confessions of Isabel Gaudi, you know, she goes as a bird down the chimney and opens the window from the inside for the other witches to get in to the house. And then one of the other things that uh, struck me about the tale is that in both the French and German version, the ball or festival is three nights long. And to me, I, I thought of, at least in my training, I, I was always taught that... Um, Magically, the full moon was three nights. And I don't know if that vibes with anybody else's practice or not. Something that I gathered from from your book was that, funny enough, the witch's Sabbath is basically whenever you want it to be or whenever you can get there. <laughs> like, like there's accounts of it happening anytime. <laughs> right. And across, again, like there's a lot of debate amongst um, theologians and writers during the witch trials about like when when does the Sabbath happen? You know, there's debate about, like, is it on a specific day of the week? And, like, why is it on the specific day of the week? Um, is it on specific feast days or holy days? Um, you know, and then it, you know, it, it does it happen? How frequently does it happen? Um, and really, there is no consensus. There's a case for pretty much every single variation made somewhere. Um and, you know, and, and really that witches go when called or when they please. So is the connection with the full moon a modern practice? Um, I, I have, I've never encountered anything like in, in witch trial transcripts, like kind of going back into that sort of area of folklore where, you know, specific moon phases are mentioned. It's not to say that it doesn't happen or that it, there's not something out there that I just haven't encountered. Um, but, I mean, in terms of, like, associations between magic and the moon, like, I think that exists in a lot of other spaces. Um, you know, if we go back, for example, to, to um, Greece and Rome, in the folklore of the witch figure back then, I mean, one of their their powers was to pull the moon down from the sky, which is partially um, where kind of this this term drawing down the moon would would later kind of be pulled and, and made into sort of something else. Um, but originally, this idea that you know they would pull pull the moon down from the sky. So I do think it it, it kind of comes later, um, but. There's there's connections between witchcraft and the moon sort of in other places. But in terms of like the Sabbath happens on the night of a full moon or a new moon, like that that doesn't seem to really be a factor. Mm -hmm. And how about you, Dave and AB? Were there tales you grew up with of when to be on the watch out for witches more than other times? Oh, yeah, it's always at night. It's always we were always warned, don't go into the woods at night. Um. Every night? <laughs> Any night, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, as far as where I come from, there really wasn't a specific day that you were told to watch out for the the witches or the boogeyman. It was just any time after dark. And and being Southern, Southerners are scared to death sometimes of the dark. <laughs> I mean, if you listen to some of the old folk tales, the scariest parts are going to happen in the woods in the dark. <laughs> On my end, uh, culturally speaking, um, more than an association to the full moon, even though we do associate the full moon more to dangers, uh, because typically, like, there is like an increase of bad luck during full moons, which is 
ironic that uh, many practitioners, at least up north, they do think that the full moon is where their powers peak. Um, down there, at least where I was, a full moon is where we need to raise our protections up type of situation because there's like more an increase of not fatalities, but you are more prone to accidents. We 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 do not we we do not talk too much about like Mercury and retrograde, so stuff like that. Um, but anyways, I digressed. Um, witches itself, uh, we were scared of them anytime because for them, at least in Venezuela, stations do not exist. We are not in a situation of winter and and you know spring and summer. It, we have the perfect weather all the time, or it's hot or it's raining, you know. So um, for us, uh, the f offerings and stuff like that, we're more focused like on Catholic celebrations than anything else. And because everything is so Catholic related, uh, the typical time that we attribute more to be prone to not only witches, um, um, Maleficium, not only to wishes like curses or attacking, but also spirits and the devil itself is at 3 a.m. in the morning, um, which was culturally said to be um, the time, the hour of the devil as a mockery of the time that Jesus allegedly died, which was 3 p.m. The hour of the devil allegedly was um, 3 a.m. in the morning. So that's typically the time where people is more scared or at least was more scared of being um, prone to be affected or attacked by witches, spirits, or um, duendes, uh, goblins. It will be like the closest translation to English and stuff like that. Uh, even though South America, we have a lot of native um, traditions, uh, Many of the influences definitely come from Europe, specifically Spanish, uh, Portugal, uh, Spain, Portugal, and um, England, <laughs> and all of that. <laughs> okay. There was one piece that we've only barely touched on on a few episodes, and every every child is is familiar with it: the shoes, and the not just the shoes of Cinderella, but the fact that the prince didn't recognize her face. He had to try the shoe on and the sisters being willing to hack their feet up to get the chance at being royalty. And I just want to kind of throw that out there and get your thoughts on that. What what I see you kind of pondering something, Kelvin. Well, so I uh... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go back for a second because of course after I was like oh I don't know if I really have any more thoughts, I had you know ten different thoughts and yay <laughs> I promise bear with me because one of the things that I think about in this tale and like if we if we sort of look at it right as like Cinderella Cinderella's a witch right she's a witch and she's going to the other world right like this. Um, you know, this castle, right, which, um, you know, I've, in earlier episodes, like, you've brought up castles and connecting it to Cochrane, and, you know, if we look, at, like, let's say, you know, this is the castle, um, and, and the prince, right, maybe represents, you know, some sort of otherworldly, you know, god, um, and she is, she's having this relationship with him, um, well, then that also means that the stepmother and stepsisters are also witches, right? Because they're also going to the other world, right? They have some sort yeah. of knowledge, um, but they're, they're not, right? Because they are not good-hearted, they're not making that connection. They want that connection, right, with this otherworldly being, but they're not getting it. And so then when he comes seeking them, right, they, they cheat. They cheat by, by um, instead of being good-hearted, right, they, they cut off parts of their feet. Um, it makes me think um, to one of my other favorite um, tales of Mother Hole. And in that story, which also has this otherworldly journey, the mean, ugly stepsister also cheats. She doesn't work hard, right? 
when um, you know when the young girl in that story she she bleeds on her spindle because she's working so hard and it drops in the well right the ugly sister she just cuts herself and bleeds on it she doesn't do the work right so she cheats and here the stepsisters are again they're cheating and of course um, depending upon you know what very like you know what version you're looking at the um, the birds from the mother's grave say, hey, she's, they're cheating. There's blood in the shoe. Look, there's blood in the shoe. And of course they get sent back and then, you know, later maybe blinded, maybe not. Um, but I think it's interesting to, you know, to look at it and say, okay, well then, you know, she's a witch. Then, then the stepmother and stepsisters also have to be witches as well. Um, and, you know, the shoe, in a way, um, you know, too, like when we look at this concept of like feet and shoes and running and all of this and this sort of interpiece between the ball and kind of back home, it's, it's that journey and she's leaving part of herself behind. And that's what it is to identify her. I, I love that so much. And I actually think we should take a step back too and say, so what happens or what were common reports of what happened when witches got to the Sabbath? Well, that sort of depends, um, right? Like I don't want, like there's a monolithic unified narrative. Sure. Um, but broadly speaking, um, sometimes there would be um, more, more business, if you will, right? So, um, sometimes there would be discussion about magical acts, typically, obviously harmful acts done between, you know, between that point and the last time they met. Um, sometimes the devil would write this in a book, and if anybody was found to be lacking, they would be punished, right? If they didn't, if they hadn't been working hard enough, um, they would be punished. Um, but outside of that, it's it's a ball, right? There's dancing and feasting and sex. And, um, you know, and again, it sort of depends. The, the one thing is that, you know, typically kind of geographically where you are, um, how that unfolds is going to change, right? Usually the closer you are um, to, to the Holy Roman Empire, right? Um, Sabbath narratives tend to be more formal, right? Because they tend to more of that inverse of Catholic ritual um, versus the farther out you go, they tend to be more festive and more kind of that um, festival kind of feel. Um, but yeah, working magic, dancing, feasting, sex, transformation, yeah, like that. And there were some accounts, if I, if I remember correctly, where there was a witch queen. Now, sometimes this may be like a fairy or goddess figure, but sometimes wasn't she reported to have been like a member of the witches who was given that yes. that title? So, I guess? depending, you know, again, there's so much variation. I mean, sometimes it is. So sometimes people would account in confessions that there was sort of this strange woman, um, and typically she would be um, noted by like the clothes that she was wearing, you know, white green colors that often get associated with fairies. Um, other times it's noted that it's a it's a witch sort of among the coven who has particular skill or beauty, and she's sort of selected to sit next to the devil at the feast. Um, sometimes her roles expand more into like ritual, right? So um, like in, in some of the Scottish trials, Isabel Gowdy, um, for example, that talks about the role of the maid and how we don't do anything without the presence of our maid. Um, so you get this idea that she does, you know, she has a more powerful role besides just being beautiful. Um, and um, so, it, it, you know, it, it does, sometimes it's a human, sometimes it's maybe something else. Um, one of my favorites is uh, Martha Carrier from the Salem Witch Trials being given the title of Queen of Hell. Um, so that's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, there's often the presence of, um, or sometimes I shouldn't say often, um, the presence of a female leader as well. I love that. 
And in um, in the Peralt version of the story, strangely, the prince is actually never called a prince. He's always referred to as the king's son. Mm -hmm. And the king's son goes out to give her, uh, uh, to dance with her and eventually select with, uh, selects her to be his bride. Um, I had the chance to talk to Sasha Graham uh, for a little advice about reading the tale. And, and she pointed out the same thing as you, Dave. She said, well, what's the main symbol of the story? It's the shoes. And she said, you know, the shoes, they hold us. They're almost like, they're almost like another symbol of home or a cradle. And then of course their transportation outside of, yeah, this means of like carrying her to the ball and back and being the, being the, the distinction between it says she leaves her heavy shoe and then puts it into the pure glass shoe. So like this idea of purity and beauty. Well, there's also too, I mean, another, like, I know earlier I mentioned Valdemir Prop um, and, and the functions of folktales um, that he talks about. And, and one of those functions too is this sort of like, um, you're not recognized, right? Like people don't recognize you and it's only through some sort of, you know, piece, right? In this case, a shoe. Um, and one of the other variations, it's um, it's actually a, a piece of cloth um, that gets mm. recognized. Um, then people recognize, like, so you kind of, you're disguised almost for a while. Um, and it's only through this marker then that, that people know, like, who you really are. There is something we spoke about in, I think, our very first discussion on Hansel and Gretel, too, how sometimes elements of fairy or um, or elements of objects that are otherworldly would be gold or clear as glass. Mm -hmm. And so the shoe itself then is this symbol of it being otherworldly and the fact that then she is otherworldly. Mm -hmm. I think we'd be um, remiss if we didn't mention... That Kelton, you also are an author of folk tales, such as the type that we like to cover on this show. Um, I guess what can you tell us about All Them Witches? Yeah, All Them Witches is really my love letter to storytelling. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I love telling a good story, and I love folklore. It's one of my favorite things in the entire world. Um, and so to sort of take pieces of folklore that I really enjoy and craft new stories, um, was, you know, something that was really fun for me. It was really spiritually impactful. Um, I mean, the other thing too, that is sort of fun about it, you know, is like, it, technically speaking, they're not they're not really folk tales until other people start to tell them and to tell their own versions of them. So, you know, it's kind of this piece where I like to think about, you know, where will these stories end up? Um, how will they be changed, right? As people tell them and change details according to what, you know, feels right for them. Um, you know, and in, you know, in some, you know, however many years is someone gonna be, you know, having a fun podcast conversation, analyzing these stories, and I'm going to be laughing, thinking about, like, when I sat down and wrote them, and, um, you know, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun. It's really, you know, looking at the way folktales and really folk narratives broadly are classically structured, um, you know, some of the common you know, whether it's functions or tail types, things like that. Um, and in working with that legacy um, is, is really a lot of fun. I love the rhyme and meter of much of this and how I can see how it could be used in a uh, chanting or mantra-esque yeah. form. The, I mean, the other sort of split goal of this book was, I mean... I was kind of, I mean, to be honest, I was kind of tired of how to witchcraft books. Um, and I was like, you know, what if we just go to the roots of, of learning, right? And learning through tale, learning through rhyme. 
um, and and teaching in ways where it's not it's not spelled out for you. You have to dig for yourself. Um, and so, can this be a book that you know if you want a story or a rhyme? Like there it is, and it's you know it's fun, it's great. Read it, share it with your friends. Um, but if you're like, I want to sort of meditate on this and see like what can I learn, what are what are the pieces I can I can pull from this? You can do that as well. But I'm also not going to tell you how to do it because there's no right or wrong. And I mean that's the thing too. Like we talk about, you know, as as we as we analyze these different versions of Cinderella and, and fairy tales and folk tales broadly is, is there is no one answer, right? Because there's no one version. There's no one correct version. There's no one pure version. Um, it's up to us to figure that out for ourselves. And so if we, you know, if you want to look at Cinderella and be like, this is a tale of witchcraft, like, you know, that, that is true then for you. It might not be true for everyone, but you're finding meaning and magic in that. And now what do you, what do you do with that? And I think that's the important thing, especially with your, your latest book, Kelton, taking, taking the stories and figuring out where do we go with it in our own journey moving forward. I mean, I've gleaned a lot of information and a lot of good stuff out of your books. Um, and like you said, this, this last one is more about, okay, this has got some good stuff. What can I get from it? How can I apply this to me? And I love how inter interpretations can be applied in so many different ways. You know, when I mentioned like the, um, the distinction of familial lines at the beginning of the tale, at the beginning of our discussion, when that first caught my eye, I thought, well, of course, it's post it's post Napoleon and the Germans are upset about the French that have infiltrated their society, you know, and Cinderella's purely German, probably, you know, and like <laughs> but there's yeah, there's so many different ways to read the stories. Um, do you have any projects or events you'd like to tell people about before we close out for the evening? Yeah, I don't think, I don't know if I've really talked about this publicly anywhere, so. Uh -oh. But I am working on a fourth book, and it's actually very much in line with the things we've talked about today. It's essentially a guide for witches and magical practitioners on studying folklore. And if you are interested, you know, whether it's verbal folklore or customary folklore, like, what is it? How do you how do you look into it? How do you adapt it to your modern practice? So, like for example, if you sat down just like we did tonight with Cinderella, like how do you how do you go about looking at, you know, what does this mean? What are the what are the things I can pull out of it? And if I wanted to, like how could I apply it to my practice? I have to pick my job off my desk. That's yeah, amazing. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear that. <laughs> been very fun to work on thus far how about any um any in-person events or classes i think i'm done for for the year until i i usually do more stuff in the summer um so i don't i don't think the next thing probably won't be until um paganicon in march okay yeah okay that's great um, AB, how about any upcoming discussions? Well, on my end, I actually, um, I'm starting a podcast with some friends as well. Um, I'm very, very happy about it. It's called Oak and Pine. And technically the first episode is already on air, but we are like, you know, um, just dipping our feet in water. So we haven't like marketed it, nor anything like that yet. We are very excited because we all are beginner practitioners to an extent one is a um more focusing one of the in, um, participant he's more focused on druidry and he's recently being trained into wicca uh but more in like the close practice element so there are a lot of things that he cannot share but he is a library of resources and then me that i have five years into my practice more focused on south american um 
diving more on towards brujeria and then our sweetest baby and uh she ladonna she is just starting her path but she's african-american so she is starting to focus like on huru you know and the practices of her lineage so our focus is more related on yes we are beginners but we want to like showcase how we are learning share free resources and something that we are very very proud is that it's very multicultural, very POC, very open to everyone. Uh, we actually call it just like a safe place for everyone to gather and talk and share information. And yeah, we're very, very proud of that. We're just beginning. Um, I think that that's my major thing, I guess, that I'm working on my with my friends, besides, of course, the content that I'm creating as well for my social media. Um and as I say to Keldon at the very beginning, I have your books on my TBR. Um, I guess that I just added two more <laughs> on this episode. Um, but I'm very excited to get to see more of what you have created. So, yeah, that on that. Um, but, yeah, Oak and Pine Podcast, uh, YouTube and Spotify. That's the thing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I, I can't believe I didn't know about it already. Uh, we we had we we kept like in secret you know uh, we have the mentality of if we don't say anything it's gonna happen if we say too much about it uh, it never goes out so <laughs> now that it's out we are like okay it's here <laughs> and Dave any events or news you'd like to share with everybody the winter is calming down a bit so I'm gonna take the time to put a few more classes into place um, I've already got the ancestry classes that we've talked about and. The book's coming out in early 2024, The Simple Magic of Wild Things, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and I'm still building that Patreon, which is so much fun. Let me just say that. <laughs> um, but other than that, I've got a couple of podcasts that I'll be guesting on in the spring and uh, just living life as I go. What do you expect to host on the Patreon? On the Patreon, it's going to be more than more than anything. It's going to be uh, class based um, as far as the the classes that I offer. Um, we'll be doing uh, online events, uh, just getting getting the information into the hands of everyone in, in everyone. And you know that my passion is ancestry magic. Um, we're also going to talk a, a little bit about delving into the genealogy behind that and um some of the basics of just getting to know the ancestors moving from there um and like i said just some fun stuff on there too just to kind of um you know me i'm not all that serious all the time so if anybody's experienced that it's been you <laughs> Well, with that, thank you again to all of you for joining us tonight. It's been so wonderful to hear your wisdom, Keldon. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. And, and what a wonderful surprise to know you probably know more than all of us about Cinderella archetype. So this is, yeah, this was a huge treat. Thank you for being here. And for everyone, until next time, may all your travels be filled with wonder.